Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As we uh, continue this series in uh, the book of Acts, I'm actually going to read, I think your bulletin says verses 42 to 47. We'll back up to verse 41 uh, and read 41 to 47. Uh, Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work. Um, it's your function within the Godhead to have, uh, having already inspired Luke, uh, inspired these words uh, through the pen of Dr. Luke, uh, having preserved them for us um, some almost 2,000 years now. Uh, it's your function to be at work in them and by them. Use them to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Every child I know, well, every child with any sense, and for that matter, probably a bunch of adults, but every child I know would gladly eat cake and ice cream for most meals. And I don't mean like dessert, I mean for the meal itself. You know, you wake up in the morning and there's a big slab of chocolate cake for breakfast. Uh, you, You come home for lunch. Uh, and, or you open your, your, your lunch at school and there's a, a big hunk of cake and, and ice cream that somehow didn't melt, you know. Just humor me. You come home for supper and, and it's a different kind of cake and a different kind of... I mean, who wouldn't love that kind of a diet? Um, not just kids. I mean, adults too would... I mean, that sounds great. I mean, why not every meal kind of just eat... You know, just, Halloween's coming, right? You got your Halloween candy and, and, and you just eat that for breakfast the next day and for lunch the next day and until it's all gone. We Parents other, on the other hand now have a, an argument on your hands, sorry. Um, we know better. Uh, the reason we adults don't do that is because we know that that will kill us. Uh, that that's not even remotely healthy. As tempting and wonderful and glorious as it sounds, we know that it spells death for the one who does that. And so we don't do it and we don't give it to our kids. You've heard the phrase, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Moms, moms, you can start an argument, you can start a global war with 
three words. Eat your vegetables. We know that to grow in a healthy, normal, proper way, you you do things like, you know, cut back on the junk, lay off the processed foods, maybe get outside and move a little from time to time. There's a there's a there's a recipe for being healthy. And we know that. This passage actually gives us a recipe as it were for a healthy church. What does a growing healthy church look like? What what's the diet of a growing healthy church? Well that's in essence what this passage is about, But I want you to notice first the second word in verse 42. The second word in verse 42 matters. Because when you read the word they, you better ask yourself, who's that? And if you back up to verse 41, and this by the way is why we read verse 40, 41, you find out that it's those who received Peter's words. Those who received His Word and were baptized and were converted, the 3,000 or so souls added to the church that day. You realize the church is a corporate activity. The church is a team sport. The church is a gathered entity. This passage, I mean, there's, there's, there were 120, and, and now 3,000 have been added, and, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out on um, His followers, on the disciples that were there in the upper room, such that they then went out and started speaking in these other languages to all these people that were from all these other parts of the world. You see that back in verses 6 through 11. And they've gathered and Peter has, has proclaimed Christ from Joel 2 and Psalm 110 and Psalm 16. And it's entirely possible that we don't know the time lapse between verse 41 and 42. It sounds like there's no time lapse. It sounds like time doesn't go by. It's possible that some of those 3,000 have gone back to Phrygia and Pamphylia and whatever the other list of uh, places there were back in uh, verses 6 to 11. But the point is, the church has grown already through this Peter's sermon, this proclamation, and those who have been converted, those who received Peter's instruction, those who received the word from the Apostle Peter, are now the they in verse 42. The church is a group activity. The Bible knows nothing about a solitary Christian. The person who says, I can live the Christian life apart from the church, the Bible has no understanding of that, has no knowledge of that, it has no place for that. Because as soon as the 3,000 are added to the number, they are now committed, devoted to things together. 
The Christian life is meant to be lived in community. It's a it's it's community living, uh, regularly being absent from the church, from the body, from the gathered corporate activity of the church will most certainly stunt your spiritual growth. Christianity, Christian growth is a group exercise. Notice how this plays out in the rest of this passage. The things that that the church, that this maturing church is committed to. First of all, the maturing church is a learning community. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now maybe if you have the King James or the New King James, maybe one or two others, uh, instead of teaching, you have doctrine there. Um, don't be afraid of that word. We, I think, in many ways live in a world that says, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. Uh, I don't want doctrine. Doctrine is such a bad word. Doctrine just means, just means teaching. Um, if you believe the Bible teaches anything, you believe doctrine. And that's not bad. That's not wrong. Um, and if you say, give me Jesus, not doctrine, well, as soon as somebody says, well, what about Jesus? Anything you say is going to be doctrine. So don't be afraid of that word. I know that sort of in, in many parts of our uh, world, that's a, a bad word. But this church is committed to the apostles' teaching. These are men who... We just saw this earlier uh, in chapter 1. The twelve, the original twelve apostles are no more. Uh, Judas is gone. He's removed himself. Um, And uh, he's been replaced. We saw that back in chapter 1 with Matthias. And there there were requirements. Like, okay, if we're going to replace Judas, then then who do we decide? How do we decide who we replace him with? Well, the requirement was somebody who had been with them and with Jesus from his baptism, from his, his ceremonial cleansing until his death, burial, and resurrection. Somebody who was there for the whole thing. And so that limited the pool. But what that means is that these men have lived with Jesus. They've, they've watched as the lame were made to walk. They watched as the dead were brought to life. They've watched as 5,000 were fed with just a small basket of food. They've heard Jesus teach. They've heard Him explain the things of the kingdom of God. And now they're teaching the rest of the church. They're teaching those things to this newly formed, maturing church. In fact, for that matter, we actually have a pretty good example of what they were doing in Peter's sermon in this very chapter. When Peter takes what he knows of Christ and what he knows of the Old Testament, you realize at this point in the life of the church, none of the New Testament had been written yet. So while the events of Acts 2 are going on, they have zero New Testament. None of it's been written. But they have the Old Testament, which is all about Jesus. And Peter showed us that as Joel 2 was about Jesus. And Psalm 110 is about Jesus. And Psalm 16 is about Jesus. And so the apostles are now teaching the church. They're teaching this 
maturing congregation how Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament. Remember who these people were. Why were they in Jerusalem at the beginning of this chapter? They had come from east and west and north and south. That's sort of the pattern of of verses 6 through 11. They had come to celebrate Pentecost. They had come for the the Old Testament celebration of um, the Feast of First Fruits. Which means they're Jewish. Some are converts, some are proselytes. It says in, in verse 10, I think it is. These are, these are people with Jewish backgrounds. They understand the Old Testament. And so the apostles' job is to show them how Jesus fulfills all that they're looking for in the Messiah. All that the Old Testament anticipates in the promised Lord and Messiah, Jesus answers all of them. He checks all the boxes, if you will. And so these new converts are coming to faith in Christ and learning from the apostles, learning how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's a, the maturing church is a, a learning community. The maturing church is also a loving community. Because notice, in addition to the teaching, they're also committed to the fellowship. I'm pretty sure that our idea of fellowship and theirs are probably pretty different. They would look at us and go, but fellowship has to be more than just cokes and jokes. It has to be more than just sharing oxygen and space. There's got to be more to it than just being in the same room at the same time. Because notice the description in verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common. In fact, the Greek word for fellowship back in 42 is the same root as the word common in verse 44. In other words, they're sharing more than stories about yesterday's football games. They're sharing more than just common room, common floor space, common air. There's much more to what they share. And notice how verse 44 begins. It's all who believed. That's not a throwaway phrase. You get the sense that the reason they have all things in common is because they first have the same common faith. Because they share salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, only then can they share all things in common. Remember who these people are? Just look back earlier in the chapter. I've pointed to it already. Let me just do it again. Look at verse 8. How is it that we hear... um, each of uh, I lost my place. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then here's the list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, 
parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's east, west, north, south. That's a remote island of Crete. It's the center of the known world, Rome, and desert land of Arabia. And part of the point is the common faith overrides national, language, genealogical, all of those boundaries, all of those borders, all of those differences, all of those distinctions are gone. These people are from a variety of places. They have national differences, linguistic differences, ethnic differences, and they all fade away because they share a common faith. And then it's only because they share a common faith that they share their goods. Now look, this isn't an argument for government-mandated communism where everybody's got to be uh, the same. But imagine... Imagine the, the, the government entities we could put out of business if the church cared for her own like this. There's a picture of people don't care about their stuff because they're too busy caring about their brothers and sisters in Christ. You get this. I mean... Kids grow up. You, you, if you've got multiple kids, kids grow up, they outgrow things, they get tired of things. And even our boys would reach a place in life where they were close enough in size that they could be like, I'm tired of this. Do you want it? Yeah, I actually like it. I'll take it. And so they just trade. They swap. Well, here, I'll give you this shirt if you'll give me that shirt. And you just kind of make that swap. You, you get hand-me-down clothes within the family. As kids grow older, you just pass them down to the younger siblings. That's kind of the picture here. Not so much hand-me-down throwaways, but it's the fact that because they're family, they're just passing goods from one family member to another. I don't need this anymore. I don't want this anymore. And, and look, this person has none. And so here, take it. And they were selling their possessions and giving to any as they had need. That's fellowship. That's fellowship in the gospel that manifests itself by shared goods. They were sharing meals together, verse 42. They're breaking bread together. Okay, let me... This will be a question. I have to say it. I normally don't sort of address these kinds of distinctions in the middle of a sermon. I'll do it afterwards, but this is sort of... I don't, I don't know. There are plenty of people out there who see the breaking of bread in verse 42 as the Lord's Supper, as communion. Um, and, and that may very well be the case. My two hesitations are this. One, I think you have to assume it in order to read it that way. And two, it doesn't mean that in verse 46. In verse 46, they're breaking bread in each other's homes. It seems to be more a, a picture of a fellowship meal together. They're spending so much time together that they're sharing goods. They're passing possessions from one person to another. 
and they're eating together, they know each other that well. Now, having said that, I have a hunch that the Lord's Supper in these days was probably connected to a fellowship meal together anyway, so I may be making a distinction that isn't, doesn't really exist. Besides, just listen to the language. Listen to the, the aim of the whole passage. Just scan down the list and look, I mean, through the verses and look at all the times you get words like all or together or any. The real aim is a shared life together within the church. In verse 45, believers are selling stuff that they own to make sure that anyone else in the covenant community doesn't go without. And in verse 46, the household of God is eating together regularly, even daily. They're sharing meals together. The maturing church is a learning community. The maturing church is a loving community. The maturing church is also a leaning community. Notice the last activity to which the church is devoted in verse 42. This newly constituted church is devoted to prayer. In fact, it's actually the prayers. You get the sense that there was um, that they had a regular stated prayer meeting and the people were there. You get the sense that they were committed to, to life together and to praying together. This newly constituted maturing church is leaning on Christ. They're leaning on the Holy Spirit to be at work in them and among them and through them. They're depending on God's activity. It's no secret in today's world. Uh, the least attended activity in any uh, church fellowship is the prayer meeting. I wonder even how many churches these days even have such a thing as a, a prayer meeting. But notice this church is committed to modeling dependence on God's grace by praying together. I've said it before, I'll say it again, and you'll hear it who knows how many thousands of times um, over the next however many years. There are two things we, we think, we think we are God. We want, in our sinful nature, we want to be God of our own lives. That's, that's the real sort of conflict, right? There are two things you do every single day that prove you're not. Every time you go to sleep, you admit, I'm not actually in control. And every time you pray, you're admitting, I don't know and I can't do. I'm depending on someone else who knows better and who has more power and authority and wisdom than I do. This church is saying, look, we, we're here, we're gathered, we're united, we're one, but we're dependent. And you notice even how the language of verse 47 ends. The Lord added to their number day by day. Not they did. It wasn't their greatness. It wasn't their you know, wisdom. It wasn't their winsomeness. It wasn't the stuff they knew. It wasn't any, 
the Lord added to their number day by day. They're modeling dependence. We saw this back in in chapter 1. Just turn the page back to chapter 1 and look at verse uh, 14. Jesus, uh, just before He ascends to the right hand of the Father, He says, look, y'all stay in Jerusalem until I send the Spirit. And immediately, where do you find the disciples? Verse 14. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And it gives you the list of names. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. If you were to examine... Maybe outline your typical prayer. What would it look like? If you could sort of sum up what your, your normal daily prayers look like. My guess is, and this is true for, my, my guess is this is true of American Christians everywhere. Our prayers look a lot like, God, I want need or deserve X. Therefore, you should give it to me. And if that's not your will, you should change your mind. That's the way we think prayer works. I'm going to change God's mind to meet mine. You know, that's not what prayer looks like in Scripture. The overwhelming pattern is, God, you have said, promised, Assured, guaranteed, therefore will you do it. The the prayers of Scripture look more like asking God to do, give, grant, accomplish the very things He's already said He would do. And if my will is out of line with yours, change me. No doubt, these disciples, in chapter 1, Jesus said, you go wait in Jerusalem until I send the Spirit. I can't fathom that their prayer was anything other than, Jesus, you promised the Spirit, send Him. That has to be the pattern of their prayers. And that's going to be their pattern here. They're praying together That the church would grow and be healthy and mature and for the salvation of the lost and for greater dependence on God and His grace. A maturing church is a learning community, a loving community, and a leaning community. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. First, again, I sort of pointed your your eyes this way for just a second. But again, as you read through the passage from verse 41 to to 47, the all-encompassing totality of that passage. I don't know any other way to say it. Together, all, any, it's all language of unity. It's all language of not some or most or a few. And some of them were doing this and others were doing that. 
there's this notion that the church, all of the they in verse 42, are devoted to learning and loving and leaning. Oh, that that would be true of Grace Covenant Church. Second, let me make this other application. As you read the passage, I don't hear even the tone. The tone of Luke's language communicates joy. Even the way we say things like, hey, it's Sunday, time to get up, we have to go to church. That's language of drudgery. Oh, that we would instead say, hey, wake up. It's the Lord's day. We get to go be with God's people. It's it's language of joy. It's language of anticipation. It's language of desire and longing. And that's, that's the sense, that's the tone of the passage. People were selling possessions and giving to any as had need. And, verse 46... Receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Oh, that Grace Covenant Church would be marked by joy, by gladness and generosity. A third application, sort of the corporate application. Grace Covenant Church is committed to the ordinary means of grace. Words, sacraments, prayer, fellowship. Uh, These are the means. This was our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago. These are the primary means that Christ has given us in His Word for the maturity of believers and the congregation. If we want to grow to be a mature and healthy church, we won't seek out gimmicks. We won't seek out the latest, greatest, whatever novel to come down the pike that we've got to be doing because other people are doing this and this is the latest, coolest thing. And if you want your church to grow, you've got to be... Scripture gives us the ordinary means of grace. And we as a congregation are committed to the words, sacraments, and prayer and fellowship as we grow together. And lastly, let me make this application. If you're regularly absent... This is the kind of application you have to make looking down, right? If you're regularly absent from the corporate gathered activity of the church, and we have committed dedicated times of prayer, we have committed dedicated times of fellowship, we have committed dedicated times of of learning, of loving, and leaning together. And if, if you are regularly absent from those things, the risk of sounding really harsh. It shouldn't surprise us if our growth is stunted. It shouldn't surprise us at all if we struggle spiritually, if we grow in an unhealthy sort of way. Because these are the means that God has given for growing healthy, mature believers, healthy, mature Christians, and a healthy, mature church. And that's exactly what we want to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You have given uh, these ordinary means of grace for the the health and growth and maturity of Your people, 
of the church. And we pray that You would use them, be at work in them and by them in our own lives to grow us. Uh, That we would be healthy and mature as believers. Uh, That we would grow in our love for You and our love for others and our dependence on You. And for that matter, our dependence on each other. Father, we pray that we as a church, we as a congregation would be a, a learning, loving, and leaning community. Not for our own glory, but for Yours. For the honor and glory of Christ and for the good of His people. We pray all this in His name. Amen.